welcome to the C Word, the Conservatives podcast. Today we're talking about working with techs. I'm Jennifer Thyssen, Objects Conservative based in South Yorkshire. And I'm Chloe Rumsey, an Objects Conservative based in Greater Manchester. Welcome to the show, everyone. Hi. Today we've got a special guest host with us. Erica, would you like to introduce yourself? Hi, I'm Erica Lewis. Uh, I'm a freelance art handling technician uh, based in Cambridge. Hi, Erica. And Welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Right, so I'm kind of hoping this is like kind of the first of our kind of working with series because I kind of want there to be like some more talking yeah. about conservatives working with other like groups of museum and art professionals because I think definitely that'll be a fun one to do. And uh, yeah, art handlers, art technicians, museum technicians, there are very many different words for you guys but you are kind of the backbone of exhibition work and things actually happening in museums I would, or exhibition venues in my opinion anyway. It's quite a broad text, it's quite a broad term isn't it? It is. Yeah one of the things that I love about it as well as it, it becomes difficult sometimes to explain my job <laughs> to other people but yes there's like anywhere from fabrication technicians who deal with a lot more of the build side of exhibitions to even conservation technicians who mm-hmm. have a greater mix of conservation background and skills so yeah there's like a huge breadth and you know some some people keep their skill set broad um, and then some people specialize you know like mount makers mount making techs Shall we ask you like how you got into this and where you've come from professionally? So I and this is this is not uncommon as well. I, I've met quite a few technicians, especially on the freelance grid, who are art school graduates and so they've always had a particular interest in the arts. So I graduated from art school and I'd been working in a museum as a gallery attendant to, to pay my way through school. And just, you know, if you're going to have a part-time job, (laughs) that's a nice one. And I got to meet, you know, a a lot of other similar-minded people through that job. And they needed some people to to basically help build cases. Uh, And so they put out, you know, a job spec and put together a team of people who wanted to learn. And I was one of them. And so I started out painting plinths and building these... They were like government indemnity spec cases that sort of came flat pack and could put together and then be oh, taken like a apart. Really, really, really intimidating IKEA kit. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> uh, really with specific. you know lots of wires inside, alarms, and very heavy glass panels. <laughs> uh, it was it was really it was a lot of fun, a lot of hard work. Uh, I really appreciated the opportunity and. I just kind of kept pushing and annoyed my way into <laughs> doing more work. Uh, and and I was supported as well by uh, people in the museum who saw that uh, I was very keen as well as I like to think good <laughs> at it. And uh, I mean, I'm here today, so I, I must have picked something up. So yeah, it started out really as a kind of helping build some walls in the gallery, paint, put cases together, move plinths around. It wasn't 
until I mean, I, I think it was working alongside conservators actually that I was introduced to handling objects. It, and and I took the lead from the conservators. I didn't do anything that they didn't specify was okay. I watched exactly how they handled things.、Uh, I asked a lot of questions. So that was kind of my introduction. You're very good at asking. I was going to say leading questions, but it's more like <laughs> you're kind of asking the right questions because we, because when when you and I met first, Erica, I was still a, very much an emerging conservator, and someone asked me, right, how do I remove this from the crate that it came、mm. in for something we were installing? And that's a surprisingly intimidating question because、yeah. it wasn't my object, but of course I did have the knowledge of how to remove it. It's it was more of a How do I convey that? And like,、mm. w- w- what is a good way of instructing someone in doing that? And you're very good at asking follow-up questions and also asking the why. Why do I do that though, rather than this? Because this is more intuitive. And like that sort of thing was actually really helpful and has really helped build my confidence as a conservator of like being able to relay the correct information when it comes to like teaching people about object handling. It was good, and I I was also very new at the job when I first worked with both of you actually, and so we were all kind of.、Um, it was quite nice to to learn together and to not feel as if we were just the least knowledgeable in the room and kind of mouths closed trying to follow.、Uh, we were we were quite an integral part of the team. Learning how to communicate well within a team was. Something I think at the time I wasn't <laughs> very experienced at, but I was very grateful to to you guys because you really engaged with me、uh, as well on that one. So thank you. <laughs> Aww, I've worked a lot with a lot of different types of techs and different types of people that you would consider to be techs in particularly a lot of different types of situation. So the projects that we're referring to now are really, really busy, very, very fast turnaround installs of like visiting exhibitions that require like. A very intensive five days, or a very intensive seven days for the tech side of things. So I think that was a really good introduction for me personally working with technicians. It was partly the way that the projects changed that I saw the different types of techs working on the different types of things in the first year when we met Erica, and then the sort of subsequent repeating years working with the same, working with you again, Erica, but with like different. Situations of like curators that had different experience levels and different visiting institutions, different build technicians, different like、uh, like movement technicians. It is a, is a really strong one. It was trial by fire that we were introduced to it, really, because it was a not only a fast paced ex- exhibition install, but there were a lot of objects and a lot of institutions that perhaps weren't used to regularly lending out. So many objects, and so,、um, so yeah, we met during a time where it it felt chaotic because we were so new to it, and it was. Yeah,、uh, I suppose is that maybe that's、um, that's a skill too that one must have working with and for tech scenario. Number one is communication,、uh, and number two <laughs> is adaptability. I think I feel sorry for conservators that. Don't get the chance to work so closely 
with technicians and the build side of things as I have because I know some some exhibitions it's done and built and painted and shiny and dusted and everything and then the curators go in and say where everything needs to go and then the conservators go in like two weeks later and there's no crossover good point I, I wrote down something on my piece of paper in front of me that just looks oddly philosophical what are texts and where can we find them uh as if we need to go find them in the wild that's not quite what i meant i think what i wanted to discuss with that question was actually more like what sort of institutions have technicians and then what sort of institutions might not because i know that certainly where i work now is is a is a smaller museum and doesn't have any text it used to but there there aren't there isn't anyone with that skill set now which means that there is no mount making there is no you know aside from what i can do and that's limited to the very specific things usually soft mounts like so that there aren't the kind of skill sets that you might that, that you would definitely have if if you had technicians on staff but then of course, we have not everyone has them on staff permanently. Because um, Erica, you're you're freelancing, for example. So I mean, so you get you get hired in for specific ev- events and exhibitions. So like, there are all these sorts of ways of working that I thought could be kind of interesting to explore. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I think further to Chloe's point on on working with technicians as well as seeing how things are done perhaps during a build and an earlier stage where objects might not be ready to go in but they're elsewhere um, being attended to and so conservators and techs are still working together um, and seeing both sides of that part of the process. Um, I think being exposed to the earlier stages of an exhibition install really informs the work that goes into it. If you're working as a conservator, it it further informs what kind of environment the objects are going to be in. You you see a lot more of the what goes into the build and and it's a bearing of the device in a way. So uh, you see what, what things are made of and how they're made as well. And so there's an understanding of how you can take that knowledge perhaps at a later date when you come across another job and you're like ah I know perhaps how I might display this within this smaller institution as Jenny has said where there are no texts but I've experienced and witnessed ways in which this can be done and now I can test them out here as well and Mm. um, so that that kind of knowledge as you gather and work with other like you, you gather it over time uh, when you work with a variety of people. And so that's why I particularly enjoy working with teams that are so mixed in terms of skill sets. So conservators and exhibition coordinators, uh, curators, of course, other techs, fabricators, down to like, you know, graphic designers even. I do think times have changed, certainly as well. Jenny, you just mentioned that for institutions that used to have a tech, Sometimes that used to be the conservator and that the conservation and technician role kind of merged together quite a bit. Um, And I, well, I have no idea, you know, at what point it changed and at what point the did the conservator become the tech or did the tech become the conservator kind of thing does anyone know of institutions where there are like existing dynamic old and existing dynamics of tech and conservator working together simultaneously or is it always been a bit blurred that's that's so interesting because just thinking about the history of the organization i'm at now there's certainly been a 
kind of blending of the roles because sometimes the conservator was they were really called a te- conservation technician but then there was also art technicians i think and then oh. but they were really technical roles and i mean arguably conservation still is in many in many instances mm-hmm. anyway and yeah, it's hard to say because I don't know enough about different institutions to say what the kind of yeah. history and relationship between the two kind of strands are. But that's so interesting. I kind of hope that someone out there can can shed some light on that because that's really interesting to think about. I think it varies massively between institutions, as, as anything mm. does. Mm. Some of the larger, older institutes, they their departments, and, and this is from knowledge of some some of it firsthand and some of it through friends and colleagues uh, who have worked or currently work at larger institutions. But there are distinct departments and that, so there are art handling departments uh, which are separate from the conservation departments uh, mm-hmm. as well as types of objects that are dealt with. So... There are, you know, part, there's a department that deals with um, objects and type like furniture, uh, ceramics ah, of a certain type. Yeah. And so, and, and you do have like a, a technician studio in some of the places that I've worked at. They, there's like a technician studio uh, and perhaps even a workshop. So there's going, there will be yeah, what we is used referred to, to as... Yeah, so it's like like a um, a dirty workshop where things are yeah. fabricated. Yeah. <laughs> it sounds terrible, it's, but it's full of you know, yeah. <laughs> there's there are no objects present there. Um, no. And then there's usually like a clean workshop, perhaps uh, where you may have objects and amounts being made, like finer amounts, perhaps. Uh, and then there's yeah, typically there's a conservation studio which is entirely separate within that department. And these are the bigger institutes that perhaps have a lot more funding a much larger collection and probably you know multiple exhibitions at any one time Mm. yeah and And, then and also probably notably has multiples of anything so multiple technicians multiple conservators as you say split by department sometimes that sort of thing yeah absolutely Uh, and some of them um they do because that have multiple technicians for one department because of the types of objects that they deal with. So yeah. anything, you know, uh, anything that has ancient objects in it, a lot of those are stone-based and they're big yeah. and they're heavy. Giant statues. Uh, yeah, that's going to be yeah. hard. <laughs> so <laughs> they tend to have quite a few people on that, and and they'll have things, you know, the the right equipment. So you will have a technician who will have a forklift license, for example. Or you will have a technician or multiple technicians who have an IPATH certification, which is uh, that allows you to drive a scissor lift oh, as well okay. as a few other. So there's different grades of those certifications. So, yeah, that's that's the other thing. People are qualified in vastly different ways, depending on what kinds of objects they work with, perhaps. And that's not just the skill sets they have. That's also like actual certifications that they have earned and through the institutions who will normally put on a class and then um, you're awarded it's a license essentially so you have to you have to renew it yeah so things like that whereas smaller smaller institutions you may have just one technician who covers the entire collection which I've worked in a, a smaller institute that is like that they just have the one technician and he dealt with anything from works on paper books paintings f- 
furniture, ceramics, glassware. Wow. Um, I mean, it, it was a broad collection. It, yeah, it yeah, is a broad collection. Was so. that mounting? So yeah. was he particularly mounting for display? Or was he also packing and, um, like, you know, I suppose developing display methods for loan and stuff? Or was he working with conservators at the same time for that element of it? Uh, all of it. Um, right. The conservator aspect, though, was really on a, a sort of an ad hoc basis. Mm-hmm. Um, they really, conservators were typically hired in, so they didn't have an in-house one because it was a very small collection uh, and things didn't often move. Um, so they had freelance conservators that they would bring in or they would send things off to for conservation if, if things were going out on loan. That's really interesting. So you mentioned qualifications and certifications. What are available to do? There's quite a range and it really depends on what you need. So there's, you know, you can get a forklift license, you can get an IPAF certification and there are different levels of What's that? Um, so it's IPAF and MUPE certification, mobile elevating work platforms. Ooh, um, okay. Cranes often come into it, <laughs> crane work. So that's, yeah, there's a whole host of different certifications you can get. Um, there's also like a, a PASMA card that you can get, which to say I can do this, but equally for insurance reasons to say that you've taken this course so that you can build a scaffolding tower uh, safely. So that's what that's for. Um, Oh, cool. Yeah. I want to pick up on the freelance element of your work and the work of your freelance colleagues that you've worked with. We've ascertained that techs can have really different roles, right? Mm-hmm. So obviously a, one tech could be building a wall and another tech could be literally mounting an object, paper object to, you know, a whatever, physically, you know, interacting with the object itself. When you're going through the employment process or when you're going through like talking with a, a potential employer, how does it work in terms of, I suppose, guessing what that employer might require you to do in the future of that of the role like how do you do does your portfolio sort of cover particularly object specific things or do you just discuss with an employer potential employer this is what I can do and this is what I've done in the past kind of thing yeah more the latter in terms of so usually there's I'll present my CV which kind of covers Mm -hmm. a broad range of types of exhibitions and working within different institutions and I'll kind of talk through or highlight certain certain works or jobs that I've that I've been on which I think might apply so for example like I would and have trusted you to install a load of objects in a display case Mm. or well I'd say particularly help me install a load of objects in a display case (laughs) so like like, not just like set you free (laughs) while you go for a coffee (laughs) (laughs) well yeah exactly yeah that probably wouldn't be fair not that I wouldn't trust you to do it (laughs) so you've done a lot of that kind of quite you know interventive sounds weird because that sounds like a conservation like a method of conservation you've done quite a lot of interaction with uh, close interaction with objects how does one communicate that with a potential employer that you've not kind of it's not just that you've closely hung paintings and worked with curators to make sure levels are all right and you've built things and you've done the blah 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 blah, all of the all of that but that you also can kind of bridge the gap between the traditional tech and the conservator 
Well, usually before I go on a job, they'll will have like a face to face meeting, ideally, and you know I will have sent my CV in, and so they can kind of see what types of jobs I've worked on, and there's usually a, a bit of a description. And and when people are trying to hire techs as well, I think you are looking for perhaps a range. If it's if it's an exhibition. That you know, there's a range of objects. You're like, okay, I'd like to see that someone. This indicates that they have some adaptability. You said earlier that the second kind of skill that is required is adaptability,、mm-hmm. um, and and that is kind of communicated through the experience that you have to present them. It speaks of transferable skills as well. So yes, ideally. You would love to get a technician who has done something very similar before, and maybe they can specify. But that's not always the case, and so you you hope to find someone who can be creative enough to to be able to make that job happen. And and there's a certain level of trust as well.、Um, you have to be honest with what you can do. It doesn't benefit anyone to to lie. <laughs> <laughs> rule rule one, or you know, skill one is communication, and it's it benefits the team and everyone by saying, "I haven't done that before." However, here are instances where、uh, I've done something either similar or I've stepped up to the mark, and I don't necessarily shy away from that kind of challenge, and I've come through, and this is why. And so you you try to convey to a potential employer, this is how I work. And this this is how I this is what I bring to the team, and this is what I hope to bring to the team. Because ultimately, you know, you you're you're a supporting role in this, and we're all supporting roles within. And I I talk a lot about installs because that's predominantly what I do. But as a freelancer, however, you know, it's the same within. If if you're just like cleaning、uh, a sculpture, you know, you still there's there's a certain amount of Communication, adaptability, and and a problem solving element to all of our jobs.、Um, it's just on a different scale. I would say that that's not dissimilar to how it is, you know, trying to approach clients from a conservation point of view as well. You know, if you're asked to do something, if you do take on commercial work or freelance work in whatever capacity, then you know it is it, it can be a negotiation of that sort. Like both technicians and conservators, they're such high skill, creative jobs. That's so much problem solving and so much about how you apply yourself to a job. And I think I think that's a really interesting parallel between them as well. Further to that, there's there's never there's never an instance where all of the elements are consistent and are the same. From one situation to the next, even、yeah. if it's you know, if say you're slinging a heavy statue or sculpture from one building into another, yes, maybe you've done slinging multiple times before, and so of course you're experienced in that. But it's not going to be the same.、Um, you are hopefully working with the same equipment, but the conditions will will change, and so there has to be, and you know, you have to have. Uh, a certain amount of adaptability, even it, when you are experienced.、Um, I suppose if you've worked in the business for like forty years, you may feel like you've seen <laughs> it all. But I would still argue that every time you have to put a giant perspex hood over、mm. an、Ugh. installed object, 
that's always going to be a different weight balance to that hood. So it's going to be a different object. That is my least favourite aspect of install. <laughs> Mine as well. Whereas for me, I it's it's not that it's my least favourite uh, like yours, and I understand the fear. Um, <laughs> I can, I have now the experience where I'm like, okay, yes, I know that I can do this. But again, the conditions have changed. The teammates uh, I'm exactly. working with are different. Mm. The place is different. The hood might be different. Also, I might be different. That's the different, especially if you have, if you've got 40 years of experience, fine. But the condition that is definitely changing is your body. Yeah, <laughs> this is a very yeah. physical job. and. So it doesn't even have to be like there may be days where I'm physically more tired than I was the other day. And so my performance is going to change. And that's not just due to, let's say, age, diet, or if I've like done a a bunch of exercise recently or I went out for a long cycle ride or maybe I'm menstruating. You know, as a female technician, that is a thing. And so I recognize that my performance um, can can be tracked in terms of what time of the month it is uh it's experience can be misleading in that it it can allow you to rest on your laurels somewhat Uh, i've worked with very experienced technicians who use very outdated methods of object handling or who are too cavalier in how they are around objects or move and handle and display or their consideration of objects as well as not really being open to new ideas new methods so it experience isn't always a plus although it's so important to have a cross-section of people for a team in terms of experience skill set and background you know there's always something it's good to have a mixture to be able to basically present a more well-rounded team that's going to have a lot more ideas and responses to whatever problems arise can i jump on the sexism thing yes please so (laughs) i'm really (laughs) i'm really interested in um i think women in male-dominated areas i think partly because Mm. my sister is a physicist and she's always fought for this and i've witnessed a few situations myself working with you know all male teams and watching other women working with all male teams and stuff where there's been a bit of crunchiness and i wanted to talk to you about i wanted to ask you about your experiences of being a woman in tech Mm. they're they're varied um i've been on several you know all all male tech teams uh one instance it was i i genuinely didn't notice that i was the only woman because all of the techs you know it was a range of ages Mm. they were all came from art backgrounds so they were all you know feminists and it they just you know i was just one of the team Mm. so gender didn't feel like it came into it because of the way they were and made me feel so comfortable and that's a job that I love returning to as well because of that experience I have however had jobs on the other end of that spectrum where I was on a very long project and so there was a mixture of age and experience on this particular job so I was the first female technician on that job that job had already been going on for three months by then Mm. Oh my God. That's always a difficult thing, isn't it? I felt very uncomfortable 
there there were actually I was made to feel weaker. My strength was constantly questioned. Uh, I wasn't necessarily allowed by the more exper- experienced, I say, older technicians. And this isn't an age thing either, because I have worked with plenty of older technicians who do not exhibit sexist behavior whatsoever. But these guys, yeah, they were overtly sexist. And so they didn't let me carry certain crates they questioned my ability to do things or handle tools and then there were some obscene jokes as well um it it was a really difficult job and that and that was one of that was one of the worst experiences in terms of so i'm like that's i'm just illustrating like a particularly bad instance there have been other yeah sure more subtler instances most sort of everyday sexism within the workplace Mm. is far more subtle than perhaps making a joke about women and like male members (laughs) so which is what happened (laughs) um i recently did however have a job where it was an all-female team uh those are very rare that was a wonderful job and it's a repeat job that i always look forward to and they're people they're female techs that i love working with so yeah those instances are incredibly rare though Uh, and that's not for lack of female technicians there's actually a lot and really good ones So uh, out of curiosity, how how do you find technicians that, you know, like you don't have any in-house? How do, how do you go about finding them? That is a good question. My my friend Sarah Tithredge, um, she set up Art Tech Space. And so that puts clients, galleries, museums in contact with technicians, as well as it puts technicians in contact with each other. Awesome. Most of the time I find people through recommendation and that's how I get a lot of my jobs as well um Mm. you get kind of over time a little rolodex (laughs) of (laughs) technicians if you're working with conservatives especially ones from outside institutions and on objects that you've not seen um if you're creating a mount then I know it it is a thing that happens that the the object and the conservator turns up and then the mount isn't suitable or the conservator Mm. isn't happy how does how do you feel about that and how do you approach that in terms of uh as you say dealing with disappointment when when amount is unsuitable for a particular work i think it it's just part of the job you know y- you sometimes spend a long time and uh, a lot of effort on fabricating amount to to display something and uh either it doesn't work or you know the measurements weren't correct or the materials not quite right or or even they decide that they're not going to use the object like oh the object can't go on display and so the mount isn't going to ever be used anyway you just have to accept that that is part of the job and and that's okay you're there because of your experience and ability to roll with the punches essentially as much as anything (laughs) (laughs) and uh yeah it it, it's gutting of course if especially if it's like uh a a completely new style of of mount that maybe i've made for something that i i'd never i just designed and like i put all this effort and work into it and then it doesn't get used and yeah it it does kind of suck but i wouldn't say that it it was entirely 
worthless in ter- or misuse of time necessarily mm. it's people don't always communicate all of the information the necessary information at the time that you need it so maybe that's the fourth maybe that's the fourth skill then that all conservatives and techs need when working these situations <laughs> communication adaptability problem solving and patience <laughs> i definitely 100% believe that <laughs> definitely patience because i have seen how long you've had to hold paintings in place before someone decides that it should go about one inch lower no try oh, one inch higher no two inches higher Back some down. skill <laughs> to, to keep your face before you're even allowed to put them up <laughs> I, I've actually been on a job where uh, I was holding a painting up with a colleague and the curator w- was looking at it from afar and then proceeded to walk up to it and examine it up close. <laughs> and my colleague just looked across the painting at me and sort of gave me this deadpan look of, I cannot believe what is happening here. <laughs> um, so, yeah. Out of we interest, were, if yeah. you have a, uh, like a, a t- a text curator and conservator team what's what's your play on um curators asking one thing and the conservators like no don't do that because i feel like that's an unspoken thing that happens more regularly than than uh we like to discuss because we want to all be friends and we all love each other but also sometimes we have disagreements <laughs> absolutely well, yeah but Again, I I think that a lot of that is about managing expectations, which we talk about a lot in conservation. Yeah, yeah. Because sometimes, you know, a curator just really wants it to look a certain way. And they kind of look at the team of people who make that happen, being the conservator and the technician, and kind of go, make it look like this. And then you have to go, that's not possible. (laughs) But mostly because it's not your object. And we're not allowed to do that. Um, But sometimes it's just their enthusiastic, it's their exhibition it's expression of creativity and you know all of their scholarly knowledge that goes into this exhibition and they're just so excited i i have to say like a dozen examples spring to mind <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um it's it, yeah it, it's nice uh to see particularly uh, to see a curator enthusiastic about things um i actually love that it's so much better than the deadpan i'm very serious yeah, <laughs> I probably have deep feelings about this, but I'm going to go off here and brood. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I, I mean more often than not, and I think that's totally a um, what what perhaps the public think a curator is like yes. this very sort of stand up person. <laughs> Whereas my experience of them is, I mean, they're total dorks. They love what they yes. do. They love <laughs> what they're talking about. It's 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 wonderful to see that kind of enthusiasm. <laughs> I, I would um, say that, that I would say that the public is imagining a tall, slender man in a very well-cut, possibly tweedy outfit, brooding heavily, and then the actual reality is a small, dumpy woman who looks like the happiest <laughs> librarian in the world in a really, really ugly cardigan, going yes. More often than not, that is the case, and I love it. But um, uh, and sometimes it's really annoying where you're like, you know, I, I love that you love this right now. However, we don't. Have have time for this (laughs) i just need you to make a decision please don't tell me the backstory on this object and why it is very special within the exhibition and all of the detail along with that (laughs) just tell me where to put it um yeah it's 
and and there's times where you know I I think I wanted to strangle a conservator from for saying like no we can't do that and I'm like oh that would have made my <laughs> life so much easier. <laughs> but uh, it it is kind of a team effort, and I've seen you know curators who have been totally gutted with um, having to position like a plinth in a certain way, perhaps due to uh, sometimes things are laid out and then you don't consider, oh, actually we can't light it from that angle, so you have to then move the case. Um, and, and it yeah, changes or- the flow. And, and you know, that there's, especially with, uh, I guess, first-time curators, um, because as with anything, there's a le- there's certain level of compromise that has to happen, not only within the team, but also within the install, um, what logistically is feasible. Again, that's that falls under dealing with disappointment. It isn't just technicians who have to face that. It's it's all of us within the team, curators, conservators. So has working in museums and working alongside conservators changed the way that you work with modern art and like commercial art galleries and stuff? I see a lot. I ask this because I see a lot on your Instagram whilst you're on um, jobs <laughs> and stuff of like this dreadful packing material that you found or like <laughs> look at all this tape or something like that. <laughs> yes, it absolutely has informed how I work with, with all objects. I have a last question for you, and that is, what is the best thing about being a technician, in your opinion? There's quite there's quite a few good things to choose from, to be honest. Um, for me... You can do a list if you'd like. <laughs> well, for me, the the top thing is the people involved. It's why I enjoy this job so much, particularly freelance, because it, it gives me a, a variety of teams to work with and you know, to, to a certain extent, I, I can sort of try and follow the types of jobs wherever possible that I enjoy most, which usually is working with public art collections, um, mm. you know, over, say, private collectors and commercial galleries and things. But I love the types of people that it puts me in contact with. And I think the other main thing is the problem-solving element of it. Uh, it you have to be very creative with it and like physically creative so uh, I like thinking on my feet and I like using my body and being active on a job Um, I don't I've never worked in an office Um, I'm not sure I'd be particularly good at it (laughs) either (laughs) I, I like being active and so having a problem to solve having to make something or adapt something with most of the time limited resources as well uh, that's that's quite an invigorating challenge and it can also be a very frustrating one <laughs> too admittedly yeah. but but it can be very satisfying when when i do it especially you know if i have like uh, very limited resources and it's like yeah you know i pulled this off with not a lot <laughs> and a very exactly. little time and you know what this is good. I am proud of myself. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, I would definitely say it's the people I get to work with, like you guys. Aww. <laughs> yeah. Um, I like this. I always feel like I, I learn something new when I'm on, on a job with not just you, but other people as well, of course. But um, I like that I always feel like I do learn something new, which is great. I mean, isn't that half the point? <laughs> I feel like that's the perfect place to end. Today I'm reviewing 
Sydney Nolan, The Artist's Materials, by Paula Dredge. This is a 2020 Getty publication. First things first, I didn't know who Sydney Nolan was when I picked this up. I'm not very well versed in modern painters, let alone Australian ones, but I wasn't going to let that stop me. So if you're anything like me, here's a really, really quick biography. Sir Sidney Robert Nolan was born in 1917 and grew up to be one of Australia's leading artists. Um, he started his working life working on signs and display, using spray paints and other domestic paints, which he then began using in his art. That's a very simplified version, but still, he was a prolific artist, working with a variety of mediums that all prove headache-inducing for conservators, and he's perhaps best known for his depictions of the outlaw Ned Kelly. So, there. Don't worry, though, you don't actually need to be familiar with Nolan's work to read this book. You'll get to know him quite well over the course of the book, actually, as each chapter is dedicated to a different era of the artist's life what he got up to, what influenced or inspired him, and of course what materials he used in his art. Nolan was apparently famously enigmatic, yet extremely thrifty when it came to his materials, so a lot of this is based on a mixture of observation and analysis. Each nugget of history, like what type of household paints were available in the 1930s and 40s, is accompanied by rich descriptions of how to spot it with your own eyes uh, when found in artworks, uh, plus a smattering of data from FDIR and XRF analysis. And don't worry, it does explain what those types of analysis are as well. It's actually great like that. I'm torn between reading this book as an artsy science nerd um, or a professional conservator, because it's remarkably compelling. The writing is really captivating, whether it's about Nolan's life or the chemical composition of Julix paint, and I found myself scouring the photos for signs of weird cracking and, bizarrely, also cat pee, with much more gusto than I anticipated. I mean, I don't work on this stuff at all, so I don't understand how I'm so wildly fascinated. What's wrong with me? The only chapter to not follow the kind of blow-by-blow era format is the seventh and last one which is more aimed at conservators, as you'd expect from a chapter called Observations on Condition and Conservation. This is followed by several really useful appendices of beautiful data on various paints and other materials that Nolan used. You know what, I'd certainly recommend this book to anyone who's likely to work with this sort of thing. And by this sort of thing, I mean artworks from the 20th century. Nolan wasn't exactly the only artist who used domestic paints, spray paint and... Um, let's say less stable goop for their work. Mmm, lovely. This book has 136 pages, juicy colour illustrations throughout, and is available for 40 American dollars from the Getty store, or for 27 of your British pounds from Amazon UK. Take your pick. Hi, and welcome back to the Benchmark Bar. I'm Amanda Richards, and once again, we'll be making a drink together. Today, we'll be making the exhibit opener. Um, So let's get started. What you're going to need first is about an ounce of Chambord, which is a beautiful raspberry liqueur. So we'll pour that into a champagne flute directly. So about an ounce there. Close that up. And then about a half an ounce of Di Sirono. Okay. Right. Then 
I'll give that a quick swirl. And then we will top that off with the champagne. Let's see if I can get this opened here. We'll just fill that to the top and then drop in a raspberry and garnish with a mint leaf and there you have your exhibit opener for our mocktail version of this we'll go a little bit different we're gonna grab some raspberry jam about a half an ounce Bear with me on this one. So we'll throw roughly about half an ounce in there. And then a couple drops, one to two drops of almond extract. We don't want to overpower it. And then mix those together gently. And then we're going to top it with um, ginger ale. that up gently and it helps if you stir the raspberry jam a little bit to begin with just to break up some of those chunks if you want it to get really smooth you could strain it then pop in a raspberry here as well and garnish with a mint leaf and there you go there's your two drinks oh one more thing before we go um we should probably mention that in case you are interested in becoming a technician, there's the Conservation and Collections Care Technicians Diploma, which is run by the VNA and endorsed by ICON. So that's something you should probably check out, you know, if you fancy it. Bit of conservation, bit of being a technician. That might be something for you. Um, if that does take your fancy, then we've popped a link to the program in the show notes. That's about it, really. Um, if you've got any comments questions or corrections we do always welcome them so you know do get in touch if you're enjoying the c word and would like to support our work then please consider becoming one of our patrons for as little as one dollar per month you can help us keep our episodes online and more of them coming patreon helps us meet our regular costs for the show and also to plan ahead so we know roughly how much of a monthly budget we've got that's super helpful when you're trying to do something special like buy a better microphone or save up to go to a special event. Your support also helps keep us free of advertisements. In return, our supporters get access to our archive of extended episodes, which you can only access on our Patreon page. Yeah, for that $1 a month, you get a little extra audio enjoyment. We've crunched the numbers and it's about 10% extra content on a regular basis. That's well, not bad for less than a cup of coffee, eh? If supporting us sounds like something you'd like to do, then head over to patreon.com slash the C word and join our bunch of absolute champions. Thanks for listening. With the C word and you've been listening to Erica Lewis, Chloe Rumsey, 
and me, Jenna Mathiason. Join us next time for an episode about gap filling. In the meantime, check out our website at theseaword.show, tweet us at theseawordpodcast, or simply email us on theseawordpodcast at gmail.com. The intro and outro music is Spring by Dida Music, used under a Creative Commons Attribution License. Additional music and sound effects by Callum Robertson. This has been a Wooden Dice production. Open Skype, test recording, input levels. Everyone seems okay. Everyone blah, blah, seems blah. okay. <clears throat> it's a musical now.